Hi, I'm Ben Pilgreen, lead pastor of Epic Church in San Francisco, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. Our vision here is to see an increasing number of people in San Francisco orient their entire lives around Jesus. But whether you're listening in from the city that we love here by the bay or wherever you might happen to be in the world today, I want you to know that I'm excited about what God is doing in your life and what he's doing in our Epic Church community. I hope you'll find this message encouraging and that it will inspire you to take your next steps along your faith journey. Epic fam, this is part two or week two of our One Thing Over Everything series. This is our summer series through the book of Colossians. And so if you missed last week, uh, be sure to check that out on our website and catch up. That's the only message you've missed of this series, but it was a good one. So be sure to check it out because it's foundational to what we're going to be teaching over the next couple of weeks. Now, one of the things that Pastor Ben emphasized last week as he covered the first 14 verses of chapter 1, and we just sang about this a moment ago, he emphasized that Jesus is worthy of it all, that he is worthy of us living for him. And so as we continue with Paul's letter to the Colossians, starting in verse 15, today we get to the part where Paul tells us why Jesus is worthy of it all why he is worthy of our worship. But first, let me prepare you for what you will encounter with this text, okay? We can't just dive in. I need to set the ground a little bit and get you ready. For starters, this passage is the linchpin for the entire letter to the Colossians, and and I would say for the whole series. In this passage, we get Paul's main idea for his letter to the Colossians. This is where Paul states, and he repeats over and over and over again that Jesus is the one thing over everything, that he has that position in life and over all of creation. So it's a very important passage. But the second thing that I don't want you to miss about this passage is this. It's beauty. It's beauty. I heard one commentator say that this is perhaps one of the greatest exaltations of Christ in the entire Bible, that this is the Mount Everest of all Christ-exalting scripture. Now, that is saying a lot, right? When you have passages like John 1.1, which says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus And the word was with God, but not only that, the word was God, is God. That's a good one, too. And Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is less well known, but it's up there. It's up there. And I think that one of the things that makes this passage so beautiful is the form that Paul uses. It's his approach in telling us why he is worthy of it all. You see, when, when Paul's argument for why Jesus is worthy of it all, it's not written in legal form. No, it's not dry, bland, or technical. No, sorry for all of you lawyers who were trained to write in that way, okay? You, you know, the Bible does have your writing style, okay? Um, your genre, think of Leviticus, But this is not that, okay? This is not that. When Paul decides to express why Jesus is worthy of it all, he does so in song. 
Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 is a hymn. But we all know that's not normal, right? Like, how many of you in your emails this week included a song? Maybe Seth did. But besides him, it's not normal, okay? But here's why Paul felt comfortable including a song in his letter. One commentator writes, Paul was not writing this letter as a document to be studied in a seminar or interpreted in a commentary, no, but as something he knew would be read aloud as part of the church's worship. He included it because he knew it would be read in a setting like this, and because he knew that, he could express his faith with majestic poetry. And that's what this passage is. It's majestic poetry about Christ. And it may not come across that way when we go to read it in our translation. Oh, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And by the way, this worshipful expressiveness that we see from Paul in verse 15, it actually begins before verse 15. In verse 9, many scholars believe that Paul was praying for the Colossians. He's not just describing his prayer. He's not just saying, oh, this is how I pray for you sometimes. No, it's, again, he knew the setting. He knew it would be presented to the church. So he's like, I'm going to pray as if I'm there because I am there. And so he's not just describing his prayer. He's praying for them. He's blessing them. And then in verse 15, he breaks out in song. This is like what Seda did the other day when we were on a call about her baptism. And I shared this with you guys last week during her baptism. But last week, if you missed it, we, we were able to baptize four people who were declaring publicly their faith in Jesus, one at 930, and three ladies at 11 o'clock. And Seda was one of them. And during my call with her, and by the way, this is before our series started, before Pastor Ben preached his message. In my call with her, Typically, when I have a baptism conversations, I wrap it up by asking, how can I pray for you? She beat me to the punch. She's like, can you pray for me? And I said, yeah, for sure. And she begins to tell me how she wants me to pray for her. But as she's telling me how she wants me to pray for her, she starts to pray. And it was seamless. It wasn't like she just stopped and said, you know what? I'm going to pray first, and then you pray. No, she's telling me how to pray, and then she just breaks out in prayer. And it's a worshipful prayer. Again, before Pastor Ben's message, he's saying, Jesus, I want you to have all of me. I want to give you all. It's worshipful. It's something within her had to stop asking for prayer and just broke out in prayer and in worship. So whether it's Seda or Paul, here's the thing. When you have a vision of who God is, when you see him as he really is, and you have the life of God dwelling within, within you, you can't help at times but to break out in prayer and in worship. And church, hear me, I believe there are days coming where we will be visited by the Spirit of God in such powerful and tangible ways that we will see Jesus for who he is, that Pastor Ben won't be able to finish his message because we will break out in prayer and in worship. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. That's the move of God. That's the move of the Spirit that we are experiencing. But you got to have that vision. You got to see Jesus for who he is. And so with all of that in mind, the importance of this passage, the beauty of it, I want us to take a moment and read it. I'm not going to sing it for obvious reasons, but I want us to look at this together with all of that in mind. Go ahead and stand as we read 
chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And Paul writes, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, Paul writes, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, hear me, of over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible like us and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all the spiritual forces, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him, so that in everything, he might have what? The supremacy, that first position. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. There was a disconnect with creation, and he's reconcil reconciling to himself all things, what? whether things on earth or things in heaven. By how, how is he doing this? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen and amen. I pray that God will speak to us. Go ahead and have a seat. I, I, I see this passage. This passage is like a like a fireworks show in the night sky, lighting up the night sky. You have these powerful and beautiful statements about Jesus just exploding in rapid succession, just quickly. And, and we don't have time to cover and analyze all of the statements, but I'm just going to grab a few. And as we go through it, I want us to consider, if these statements are true, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our lives? If these statements are true, what does it mean for our lives? So let's start. The first thing that Paul wants us to see and believe about Jesus is this. It's that Jesus is God. That's the very first thing he wants us to see, that Jesus is God. He writes, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's some language there that might sound familiar to us, right? We are all made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. That's from Genesis 1, meaning that we were created, we were brought into existence, and some of God's qualities and characteristics were deposited in us. Now, but when it says that Jesus is the image of God, that's something completely different. You see, because Jesus was never made. He has always been with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Now, quick word on the Trinity. I truly believe, if, if we're being honest, you would agree with me too, that the Trinity is probably one of the more challenging theological teachings and categories to understand, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The, the teaching basically goes like this. Three, sorry, I went like this. Three, but one. One, but three. That's the teaching. But what does that all mean? How, how is that even possible? When, when I first became a Christian, I used to struggle with, who do I even pray to? Who do I even pray to? I always felt like I was leaving someone out, right? Like I would be praying to the Father, and I felt like Jesus was off in the corner, like looking at us like, mm, 
talking to him again, right? Like, and I'm like, Jesus is not even like that. Let me just talk to the Father. I'll come talk to you later. Like, that, I felt like I was like negotiating all these relationships. And it's funny, but isn't that a reflection of my own experiences and struggles? I'm projecting something about myself onto Jesus, something that he is nothing like that. Nothing like him. I once heard, God made man in his image, and man has returned the favor. We need to be careful not to do that. We need to be careful not to make God or to see God in our own image. And this is why the scriptures are so important through the scriptures. By the way, the word Trinity never comes up in the Bible, the word itself. But you see its teaching. You see the reality of it throughout the scriptures. But so through the scriptures, I have learned, number one, like I said earlier, that the three have always existed. Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed. Number two, that, that they are all equal, meaning that one is not more important than the other. They are all equal. One did, one did not, and by the, I, I used to struggle with that one because of the hierarchy of our culture, right, where we elevate adults or leaders, authority figures over those who they are over. But what you see in, this, in the Bible, what you see is this, they defer to one another, they exalt the other, you see, and you see that even from the Father to the, to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So, they are, they've always existed, they are all equal, and they are all the same, meaning they all have the same characteristics and qualities. They are all loving. They are all merciful. They are all compassionate. They are all powerful. But here's where they differ. They differ in function and in role. Okay? They differ in their functions and in their roles. And I'm only going to focus on, the, on, uh, on Jesus right now. We did a series a while back all on the Holy Spirit. You can, you can check that out. But right now, let's just focus in on Jesus. This is why Jesus is so important. Because he is the member of the Trinity that became God in the flesh. He is the member of the Trinity that put skin on and came in and, like Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood. Where we as humanity could actually finally see him. We could see what God was like. We could see what God does. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is, when he was fully man, he also was fully God. As, as Paul writes in verse 19, in him dwelt all the fullness of God. And so, because Jesus is God, in Christ we see who God is. Amongst other things, he is creator and he is redeemer. We also see what God is like. He is a God of mercy and love and on and on and on. And we also see what God does. He is one who sacrifices himself to rescue his people from the dominion of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we see that in Jesus. We see what God is like, and we see that because Jesus is God. So the next follow-up question is this. How do you see Jesus? Is Jesus just a man? Is Jesus just a good teacher? 
In reality, and if you think about this, Jesus can't just be just any of those things. He can't. Because as, as C.S. Lewis famously wrote, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. You see, because what Jesus said about himself, he said, I am God. He said that he is God, and that statement alone got him killed. So he was either lying or crazy, or he is who he says he is. So do you see Jesus as God? Paul certainly does. He's caught up in it. He sees it. And Paul keeps on making his case. And the next thing that Paul turns to, and he is hard on this, is the fact that Jesus is creator. So not only is he, is he God, he is creator. And Paul writes that in Jesus, in Jesus, all things were created. All things. Again, things in heaven, on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. He, he made it all. Things, all things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him. What does that mean? There's three statements made here, three different prepositions. That all things were created in him and through him and for him. Now, let me help us understand Jesus' role in creation by giving you an example from our new building at 414 Brandon Street, okay? Um, for those of you who don't know, last August we were able to purchase a, a building, and we are working on building it out, renovating it so that we can move in there by next year. And early on in this process, we, we have some great partners working with us on this project. Early on in the process, the, one of the first partners that we brought on board was an architect, okay? The architect is responsible for envisioning what a space could be. Hear me. Ideas are born in them, in them, that they then begin to map out on plans. Creation was Christ's idea. It came from in him. It was his idea. But an architect can't do the work alone. So the next partner that we brought on board was a builder. And it's the builder's responsibility to take the plans and through their skill to make the vision a reality. Creation came from the power of Christ, through the power of Christ. And then lastly and hopefully, when the builder is done in 2024, we all, Epic Church community, are going to get to enjoy that new space. So the building and the build-out is what? For us. For us. Now, let me state the obvious. We. Us. God's handiwork, born in the heart of Christ, in the mind of Christ, created through his power. We were made for Christ we were made for Jesus. We were made to be in relationship with him, to be embraced by him. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that God longs for more than to have you, every single one of you, close to him, 
There's nothing that he longs for more than to have you. And here's how I know that. In, in the last verse of this song, Paul closes out with this. He's, he declares that Jesus is reconciling to himself all things. Creation was made, we were made, but yet we drifted from God. But he's like, I'm not going to let it just stay that way. He's wanting to bring us back to him. And he does that through his blood shed on the cross. Here's what all of that means. Even if you are not currently living for him, he wants you to know that he is for you. And that he has made a way for you to return back to him. And so if today, if you find yourself walking in the opposite direction of Christ, today might be the day that you can do a U-turn and come and be living for your creator. And when you turn, when you do that U-turn, you will find him right there. You were made for him. You were made to worship him. Jesus is God. We were made for Christ. Jesus is creator. Now, the last major theme or belief that I want to spotlight from Paul is the prominence, the preeminence that he gives Jesus. What Paul is going to say to us is that Jesus is first. He is first. Paul makes the same point, I'm telling you, over and over again, but in different ways. In different ways. Let me show you. These are all terms that Paul uses to emphasize Jesus' position in all of creation, in the church, and in our lives. He writes that Jesus is before all things. Before all things. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the head. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the supremacy. And if that wasn't enough, if you didn't get the point, he adds that Jesus is the firstborn. The firstborn. Now, that last one does not mean that Jesus was created and born just like us, but first. No, we, we know that that's not true, that he was, that he was born first. Um, the reference here to being the firstborn is not about a priority in time. It's about a priority in position and status, okay? And, th and this is common throughout the Bible, right? Ishmael, who is Abraham's son, he was born first, but Isaac received the firstborn blessing. The same with Esau and Jacob. Another example is that in Psalm 89, the nation of Israel receives the title of firstborn. Not because they were the first nation to exist, but because God chose them out of all the nation to fulfill his plan and promise to the earth. And this is not only a Bible thing or an Israeli thing or anything like that. We do this too. In the White House, we have a family living there. What do we call them? The first family. The term is about position. It's about privilege. It's about power. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this. If Jesus truly is first, does he hold that position in our hearts? 
If he is first over everything, does that include us as well? Does he hold that position in our hearts? And, and, and we're not bringing this up to bring shame or guilt. No, there's no judgment here. No, we bring it up because, listen, he may not be currently first in your life, but you should really want him to be first in your life. Because life doesn't begin to make sense until he holds that position in our lives. As long as there is something or someone else in that place that only belongs to God, you will always feel unsatisfied. You will always feel unsettled. You will always feel afraid and anxious. But guys, you were made to worship You were made to worship. You were made to have something first, to have something on the throne of your heart, as Seth was saying earlier, but not just anything and not just anyone. So what that means is that the career is not going to cut it. The success and the money won't be enough. The spouse and the baby that you've been praying for is not going to do it. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't long or desire for those things, but they just can't be ultimate. They can't be ultimate. St. Augustine wrote in the fourth century that you have made us for yourself, O Lord. We were made for you, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We all know that feeling of restlessness and dissatisfaction. We were made for Christ And we are unsatisfied, we are restless until we put him first, until we put him in that top position in our lives. And I know what some of you might be thinking, listen, Will, well, I believe everything you're saying, but it hasn't made much of a difference. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that we were created in him and through him, and for him. I believe that he is first, but I still feel restless, and I still feel unsatisfied, and I get it, and I get it. It's like if we have these beliefs, why has nothing changed? And I struggled with that for so long. I struggled with that for so long. I used to think that my, my most important beliefs, that my deepest beliefs, were that God existed and that he loved me and that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for my sins. I used to believe, like, these are my top beliefs. But yet, despite believing that, man, I still felt so guilty. I still felt so full of shame. And I still, at times, felt far away from God. And I couldn't reconcile the two. I couldn't understand that if I believed in all of these great things about God, why was my life looking no different? Why, did I, why was I not experiencing the freedom? And here's what I've come to discover, and through the scriptures as well, is that beliefs are not enough. They're not enough. They are not enough. I would say more than 90% in this room believe those things. But there are times it's like, ooh, my life doesn't match those beliefs. There's one author that I love learning from, and his name is Steve Cuss. And he says, this is the difference between what you would call precious beliefs and deepest beliefs. There is a difference. 
There is a difference. You might have a precious belief about God, but when your life doesn't match that belief, it's likely because you have a deeper belief, a belief that is more core, that is overpowering your precious belief. And many times those beliefs are subconscious. These are just things we've picked up over a lifetime. These are lies from the enemy that have become deep and core beliefs. But I'm telling you, it is possible for you to take your precious beliefs and make them deep and core. It is possible. But you have to do something. You have to be intentional. You have to do what Pastor Ben was talking about earlier. Set your mind and your attention on him. So I've had to learn. I've had to learn to overcome my guilt, my shame, that distance from God. I had to remind myself of who Christ says he is and who I am in him and all that he's done for me. I had to remind myself, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I had to take that verse and say, God so loved me that he gave his son that he sacrificed his son. I had to remind myself of 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I am a son of God. I had to remind myself that the words spoken over Jesus at his baptism were for me as well, and that God tells me, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. So what are the lies that you have been believing? What are the lies that you have been living out of? You need to find what Jesus actually says in his word and counter them. You need to do something about it. You need to put skin on your faith. Because belief, beliefs alone mean nothing. They are a great start, but they are not enough. Look at what James says in his letter. I love this part of James. Faith by itself, by itself, beliefs by themselves, if it is not accompanied by action, by intentionality, it is dead. Faith without works is dead. Many of us have heard that. It's true. He goes on to say, say show me your faith without deeds, right? This is why the world criticizes us. Because we say we believe one thing, but yet we don't live as if we do. We do something different. Faith... Show me your faith without deeds. It's pointless. It's meaningless. But I'm going to show you my faith by my deeds. You're going to see what I believe by how I live, by what I'm leaning into, by what I'm reading, by what I'm studying, by my prayers, by all of those things. Then James just digs it in a little bit more. His sarcasm comes through. You believe that there is one God? You believe that Jesus is God, that you were made for him, that... that, that um, he is first. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He's saying the demons see Jesus for who he is, and they're impacted in a way that they're afraid, they're fearful and shudder, but hear me, they're not walking towards him, they're walking away from him. And so if we believe, if we believe that Jesus is first and that he deserves that position in our hearts, then we need to take action to put him first in our lives. And throughout the scriptures, left and right, you see different examples for how the people of God put 
him first. And so I'm just going to give you a few of those examples, and then we're going to close up. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, Jesus is worthy of the first day of our week, the Sabbath. This is when we just stop working and producing, and we say, you know what? I'm going to trust that I can turn my computer off, that I can silence my phone, and that the world is going to keep spinning and that everything's going to be okay. That I don't have to work 24-7 like a slave. And some of you are thinking, well, the first of the week, hold on, didn't God rest on the seventh day, on the last day? Yes, that is correct. But we were made on the sixth day. So the day of rest was our first day. So what that means is that we work from rest. We don't rest from our work. It's a whole different thing. So too many of us need vacations because we're giving everything at work. No, no, no. Rest in him. Then step into work with the grace and the power that he gives you. Because Jesus is worthy of it all, he is worthy of our first fruits. That's a term that we see in the Bible. He's worthy of our tithe. That whatever God provides for us, to give him the first portion of that, okay? A tenth of that. That's the pattern we see in the scriptures. And I know a couple of people are getting uncomfortable in this moment. But this, 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 is, this is your faith in action, Right? This is believing and trusting. I'm going to put you first. So if I get $10, the, before I spend any of these $9, I'm going to give you the first one. The first one. It's believing that God can do more in our lives with 90% than we could do alone with 100%. We put him first. We, we are to put him first in our day, the first part of our day. So that means not starting with the phone, right? You lean over, and that's the first thing you grab. You get on Instagram. You check your emails. No, no, no. Put the phone in a different part of the house and seek him first. Pray to him. Worship him. We put him first. Your day will go completely different if you do that. And then the last one. Jesus is worthy of our first love, of our worship. I remember years ago, I heard Tony Evans. He's a black pastor out of the Dallas area. He was teaching through Revelations. And this phrase, the first love, comes out of one of the letters there in Revelation. You have left your first love. And this is a condemnation that Jesus had against this church. And what Tony Evans was saying is that Whenever something has that first position in our lives, God attacks it because that's the position that he belongs in. He attacks it. He, and that word might sound too harsh. Why would he do that? This is why we feel unsettled and restless too. But if you think about this, God is a jealous God. And when we give to something or someone else what belongs to him, he's going to go after it. He is a jealous God. And I, and I know we were taught that jealousy is not good. But I think a lot of things that fly under the banner of jealousy is just suspicion, right? And, 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 and just 
just skepticism about trusting our spouse. But let me tell you, if your spouse is giving to another man or another woman what only belongs to you, I believe the only right response in that moment is jealousy, is for you to throw hands and attack. (laughs) And with that in mind, I'm going to invite the band up. And we are going to give Jesus our first love. That's going to be our response today. He is worthy. He is God and he is first. We believe that. This is why our vision statement here at Epic Church is what it is, to see an increasing number of people in San Francisco orient their entire life around Jesus. Our mission is to help People put God and Jesus at the center of their lives because we believe he is worthy and it's worth it for you to do that. And we're not going to do that perfectly, but we sure can make progress. And so I want to leave us with this. Let us consider what we can do this week or today to start giving Jesus more and more of that place in our lives. What can we do? And so let us bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. And I want us to just reflect on that. What have you heard today that you believe that God is speaking to you directly? We have declared that Jesus is God. Maybe for the first time you have seen that reality. Place your faith in him. Place your trust in him. We have also declared that we exist for him. Maybe God's calling you to do something in regards to giving him more of your worship. I asked during the question, the, the statement, Jesus is God, I asked, do you see Jesus as God? But I think this question of how we are made for him, I think the question is there, do you worship him as God? And we have declared that he is first and worthy to be first in our lives. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, You are here, and you are speaking. And I pray that we will go beyond these precious beliefs, and we will put them into actions, that we will seek you and put you first and remind ourselves of your great promises, of who you say you are and what you are doing in our lives and what you have done for us already. We trust in you. We love you, God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is God and he is first. So let us stand and worship him as such. Thank you so much for joining us on the Epic Church podcast today. If you would like to learn more, you can go to epicsf.com. I want to also encourage you to download the Epic SF app so that you can keep up with everything that God is doing in and through this community in downtown San Francisco.